Well, people of God in Christ, uh, last week we started in on Romans 8, and uh, this week we continue by looking, as I mentioned, on looking at verses uh, 12 through 17. I think a good way to enter to this text, past preachers are looking for that, you know, right, Dan? How do you, how do you get into this text? What's a, what's a good introduction? Um, so um, I think a good way to get into this text um, uh, and the teaching here is by asking again, this is review, but asking again those, those three questions. I tried to include them in my prayer earlier. Um, those three questions that we uh, all have, that every person really on the face of the earth has. Number one, who am I? Uh, number two, what is my purpose? And number three, where am I going? Uh, there is something built into the human soul that, that wants the answers to these three questions. And, uh, and life is, is lived by everyone trying to find the answers. Uh, if you listen to the, uh, the popular music of our day, which I don't, I guess because I'm, I'm uh, getting old now, but uh, uh, even uh, in my younger days, uh, 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 all I had to do was to listen to the music and you can figure out what the struggle is all about in life. Um, here's a challenge for you. Go back and listen to maybe a, a sampling of 10 songs that, uh, that you heard when you were younger uh, or even today. Uh, and think about the, these three questions. All of life is based upon the quest for the answer to these three questions. Thank you very much. You could tell I needed that. All of life is based upon the quest for the answer to these three questions. Number one, who am I? Can you recognize that in our culture today? Who am I? Identity. Uh, what is my purpose? Uh, and number three, where am I going? Even more, there is a progression to these questions, if, if I could point that out. Uh, why isn't it enough simply to know who I am? Well, because we know, don't we, that it's not enough to decide for yourself who you are. Tied into who I am is why I'm here. Our identity is, is tied in with our purpose. Uh, you, um, you can't live fully, even if you know who you are or think you know, you can't live fully until you have a purpose. Why am I here? But any purpose in life needs to have a destination, uh, a point of hopeful conclusion, uh, 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 the, the hope of reaching that purpose. Uh, otherwise, how do you know when your purpose has been fulfilled? And, and many people find this out the hard way, that, that even as they decide that their purpose is pleasure, so they get there, and yet they never really get there. The experience of pleasure comes and it goes. Whether it's sexual pleasure, or a good meal, or an enjoyable evening spent with family and friends. Get there this evening... But tomorrow you will only be looking to get there again, if you can. We need a destination. 
uh, and, and we seem to know that, that it's, it's a destination beyond this life. Some would say that, that there is nothing beyond this life. And they give in to despair, like the author Ernest Hemingway. Uh, he, he arrived at despair and, and even called upon others by way of his, his, uh, his writing. He called upon others to despair and, and, and really was left with only one question, and that is, when, when do I check out? When, when do I salvage my own dignity by deciding for myself when to end my life? But into such a life, into such a life of despair, comes the call of Christ, if we will hear it. Come, follow me, says Christ to all who will hear. The critics will say, well, that's simplistic. Um, But Christ made the claim that he is God and he gave evidence that he is God, and the calling of Christ, if we will hear it, answers all three of these questions. Number one, who am I? I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. What is my purpose? To live not for myself, but to live for another, even for Christ and for others. And, and where am I going? I am, I am heaven bound. My future, my destiny is sure and it is secure because I am trusting in the one who has lived and died and has risen again so that, so that I might share in his reward even the riches and the glory of heaven. But of these three questions, I think the one that is most prominently answered in the text before us this morning is, Who am I? And the answer is that I am a child of God. As a disciple of Christ, as a believer in Jesus, I am a child of God, children of God. It might sound like a, a children's Sunday school answer. It shouldn't. That's a tactic of the evil one to make us think that the most basic truths taught by the Bible are only for children and that we ought to grow out of them. After all, children are children already, so why shouldn't they be children of God? But this should be every believer's hope. This should be your hope. This should be our assurance as we trust in Christ that we are children of God. However, we must start with this first point that we are debtors. We are debtors. Paul writes in in Romans 8 verse 12, so then brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And it does need to be clarified that that Paul is is not just saying that we are not debtors to the flesh. In other words, he is not saying that we are free of all debt whatsoever. Instead, it's an indicative statement, as we say. To some degree, it's even a declaration. We are debtors. A number of verses ago, verse 1, remember the declaration. Glorious as it is, there is now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's another declaration. We are debtors. To some degree, it's, it's a declaration. We are debtors. Believers in Christ have a debt. We have a debt. The comma in the ESV is essential uh, after the word debtors. Uh, in fact, uh, the New King James uh, uses a dash. We are debtors. Statement issued, declaration given. We are debtors. And yet with this important clarification, but not to the flesh. And we need to think about both pieces to this. Number one, we are debtors. Number two, but not to the flesh. Surely this is the point of unbelief and and rejection for many who hear the gospel. They, They might know that they need to be saved. They just don't wish to be saved by the cross of Christ. Because the cross of Christ was a payment, a payment for their sin and a payment made in the currency of blood, even the blood of Christ. So to come to the cross of Christ and to receive that payment as as payment for your sin means that you are a debtor. You are in debt to Christ as a result of his payment for your sin. That's not where where sinners left to themselves want to be. They want to be free, so they think. So maybe they even say, uh, well, if you want to save me, well, that's that's fine, uh, you know, but don't save me only to bring me into debt to the one who saved me by his blood. This is a matter of review. The Apostle Paul has already brought us here by teaching in in Romans 6 that that we, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Who wants to hear that? It's the same thing, whether whether we speak of being slaves of righteousness in Romans 6.18 or being debtors, in Romans 8:12 this is what slavery most often was in in Paul's day not one person outright owning another person but one person being in debt to another so that he became a slave to the one to whom he owed the debt so if you think slavery is uh is uh is not part of our culture today if it, you think it doesn't exist anymore, then uh, understand that uh, slavery most certainly exists, and uh, and quite prominently right here in our own country and culture. In fact, our economy is based on it. It's based on the credit card industry, uh, with people where where people rack up thousands of dollars in debt, paying exorbitant interest threatened by punishment in the form of late fees even more the credit card companies are allowed to coax more and more people into debt and those already enslaved are are drawn even into greater debt but here is is finally a a great illustration for us because even if someone come comes along and and pays a, a person's credit card debt 
that person would only go from being indebted, not to the credit card company, but to the person who paid the debt. The debt's still there, just owed to another person. And yet somebody you know, would say, well, the person who paid the debt doesn't expect it to be repaid. Credit card company certainly expects to be repaid, but if a benefactor comes along and pays the debt, well, that, you know, maybe that person doesn't expect to be repaid. Wouldn't that make the person free whose, whose debt has been paid off? Well, yes, that, uh, and, and that's really the point here, that, that when God pays the debt of sin through the suffering and death of his son, he is not expecting to be repaid. He is not expecting repayment because repayment is not even possible for the sinner. The debt paid is too great to be repaid. The cost of redemption is too precious. Being the very blood of Jesus Christ, you're going to repay that? But go back to the illustration. Perhaps... uh, Perhaps the credit card company um, or, or the credit card debt paid off by the wealthy benefactor was so great that it can never be repaid to the one who paid it. Wouldn't that same benefactor be likely to show up at the person's door and to say, we need to talk. Uh, I have paid your debt and, and I was happy to do it, but let's talk about being content in life. Let's talk about living within your means. Let's talk about the foolishness of indebting yourself to a master who is only looking to keep you enslaved. And that's the point of God's law for us. Now that our debt has been paid by Christ, let's talk about being content. Let's talk about living in the enjoyment of the good gifts that God has actually given you and not going after sinful pleasures. Let's talk about the difference between being enslaved by the evil one and being a debtor to God in Christ. Again, the point is not repayment because we can't repay it. If we could repay it now, then we could have paid it before Christ paid it for us. But we couldn't pay it then, so that he paid it for us, so that we still can't pay it or repay it, but neither are we expected to. It's grace. It's the grace of God in Jesus Christ by his blood shed on the cross. Psalm 116 says, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? It's the same question. How can I repay God for what he has done for me in Christ? The answer is, I can't repay it, but I will do this. I will offer to him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And how do we give thanks to God? How do we thank the God to whom We are in debt, but which debt we cannot repay. You give thanks to him, and you do so by having a a broken spirit before God, 
Psalm 51 says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And you give thanks to God by letting others know what God has done for you in Christ. Psalm 105, verses 1 and 2 says, O give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, and make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him, sing praise to Him, tell of all His wondrous works. And you also do it, you give thanks to God by living your life for Christ. You dedicate your life to Christ. You seek to be like Him in whatever you think or say or do because you are a debtor to Him. You owe Him everything. We owe Him our very lives. Again, this is the point where someone might say, but, uh, but I, I don't want to have to live my life for anyone but myself. I refuse to owe my life to anyone. And even believers like us that uh, have that, that residual unbelief remaining in us, uh, that hesitance, that, that discomfort. But we need only remember that there is always a debt. There is always a debt, whether to the flesh or to Christ. Again, there are two lessons in verse 12. Number one, we are debtors to Christ. Number two, just not debtors to the flesh. And so we might, we might choose the former and, and not remain in the, in, in the latter. Paul goes on to, to make it clear that, that to be a debtor to Christ is not really to be a slave, at least not according to the slavery of this world. To be a debtor to Christ is even to be a child of God. The second point of this message is we are children of God. We are debtors, but we are children of God. Verse 14 reads, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And verse 15 adds, For you, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons. And oh, how sweet that should sound. How sweet upon our ears. You have received the adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, right away, we need a, we need a clarification, I would imagine, as, uh, as Paul equates childhood in the home with slavery. It makes me think of the child who doesn't want to do his chores and uh, he says, uh, why do I have to take out the trash? What am I, a slave? Perhaps the best response of the parent to such behavior is a spanking. Although that might only enforce the child's mistaken notion, notion that he is a slave. But in one sense, the child is a slave. Think about the aspects of it. A slave is owned by his master. And a child belongs to a family and is really owned by his parents. Uh, a slave is expected to work 
And a child, if raised properly, is expected to do chores in the home. Uh, But children uh, in a good home, uh, it goes well beyond this. The child is loved. The child is, is cared for. The child's every need is met. The child is sheltered. The child is fed. The child is instructed. And again, in a good home, none of these blessings is based upon the child's work in the home. The work is certainly called for and and required, but the doing of the work doesn't earn the blessings. Can Can we see that? A child in a good home does work, but it's not work that by which he or she earns any of the blessings of the home. And, and any failure to do chores does not result in the child being cast out of the home and away from all blessing. So yes, Paul is equating being a debtor with being a child. A child most certainly lives in debt to his or her parents. But Paul is certainly not taking sides with with the child who says, uh, why do I have to take out the trash? What am I, a slave? He is simply pointing out that believers in Christ are debtors to Christ. And, and there is a response of obedience to be made. Parents hope for the child who will have that sweet disposition that says, yes, father, yes, mother. And not because the child fears being cast out, but because the child recognizes the grace of being cared for, the grace of belonging to the family, the grace even of being in debt to his or her parents. So yes, the grace of God brings about a debt. But if, but if grace is God's unmerited favor then grace is not a debt to be repaid. In other words, grace is not a loan. As if Christ said, well, I'll I'll loan you the payment. Uh, uh, I will pay it for you now at the cross, but you have to pay me back in the the future. That's That's the stuff of pagan religion. That's what the credit card companies do to enslave people. That's the way of the world. Instead, saving grace is God's unmerited favor. And it never quits being grace. It never gets repaid. But if we understand it, then we will offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And our thanksgiving will be offered by a sweet disposition in our obedience. Because by the saving grace of God, the sinner is brought into the family of God. By the saving grace of God, the sinner comes to say, is is given every basis and reason and foundation to say, Abba, Father. And this really is what Jesus was teaching when he taught us to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven. Jesus raised eyebrows, even incurred the charge of blasphemy by calling God his Father. But it gets more scandalous and yet more glorious when Jesus taught us to pray, taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. 
And he wasn't teaching us words to pray out of the prayer book. He was teaching us of that true relationship, that wonderful reality that he would bring about by his cross and resurrection. We have been adopted. We have been made children of God. And when we pray, we can pray, not just Father, but we can address God even as Dear Father, Father who loves me, Father whom I love, because he first loved me and has made me his own child. And so finally, we are heirs with Christ. Not only can we now cry, Abba, Father, but we have the sure hope of heaven. Verse 17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. To be a child of God now, to have the assurance of praying, Our Father who art in heaven, is also to have the hope of the inheritance of heaven. And this teaching from Paul really doubles back to his exclamation at the end of of, uh, Romans 7. First first his lament, his his cry of despair uh, when left to the flesh. What a wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then the glorious answer of faith, thanks be to God, God will deliver me. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. But now Paul defines that deliverance. How full is that deliverance? How complete is that deliverance? It is a deliverance, a salvation, by which I even become a child of God. It is a deliverance, a salvation, even unto heaven and eternal life. And here again, just like at the close of Romans 7, the teaching is clear that it's through Christ that I am delivered. In Romans 7.25, it says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And in Romans 8, verse 1, it says, There is therefore now, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in Romans 8, 16, and 17, we have this promise that that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, but heirs of God through Jesus Christ. We We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. teaching of God's word is clear. The, the, the proclamation of the gospel, that's what we're about here, right? The proclamation of the gospel is clear. Let it be heard. Those who have ears to hear, hear it. That it's through Christ that we are delivered. It's through Christ that we are not condemned. And it's through Christ that we are Adopted, and that we are heirs with far, far more 
to look forward to than anything we could gain or lose in this life. Let me say that again. As heirs with Christ, we have far, far more. How many fars do we want to stack up? We have far, far, far more to look forward to than anything we could gain or lose in this life, including this life itself. And the matter of what we might lose in this life is where Paul does go next. This is not hypothetical. As Christians, Christ himself promised us, in this life you will have tribulation. So Paul goes there next and and. Uh, and he writes, we are children of God, and, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. But he adds this, provided we suffer with him, in order that we might also be glorified with him. The Lord willing, this will be the matter for the next time. But for this time, who are we? What is our identity We are those delivered. We are those not condemned by a just and holy God. Even more, and and this we need for our insurance, we are those adopted by God, brought into the family of God, made to be sons of God, and therefore heirs of God. And with the hope of heaven, And once again, all through Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name, amen. Let's pray. Sometimes, O God, our Father, the good news is so good that we perhaps dismiss it without even hearing it. But indeed, the good news is just this good, that by our faith, our mere faith in Jesus Christ, we are adopted, we are brought into your family, and we have all the assurances of a child living in a good home, that you are our Father, that the church is our mother, as we might say, and that we have every blessing to enjoy as we live within this home, which is your home, dear Father in heaven. May we receive this assurance, and may we rejoice that indeed we have been made sons of God. In Christ's name we pray, amen.